Good morning, church. I am not Eric. Just clearing that up, first off. Eric is uh, at Polishing the Pulpit in East Tennessee. He'll be speaking to some 4,000 people assembled there, and we wish him well in that. But on these rare occasions where we get a, a little break and uh, a little change, the elders often like to spend time with the congregation sharing with you some thoughts that have been on our hearts. The first thought we want to begin with is that this is the book that we are going to follow. We are unapologetic in our pursuit of being restored to the ideal in the mind of God as He reveals it in this book. We believe that He reveals what is proper for us in practice and belief in the New Covenant, better known as the New Testament, for everything we do, everything we say, and everything we believe as the Church of Christ. And so we want you to know that we are committed to that path, and if you would like to visit with any of the elders, please avail yourself of that opportunity. We're in the back after worship, and if we can be of assistance in further study with you in any way, please let us know. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. The topic for this morning's lesson is quite a serious topic of being a conscious Christian, being an intentional Christian, being aware, being in the know, being alert, being awake, being a conscious Christian. And it's a very serious study. So if you are ready in your Bibles, let's begin. Some of you don't seem to be taking this very seriously this morning. Many of you who've been in our home know that I enjoy keeping aquariums. That's one of my hobbies. It's been one of my hobbies since uh, elementary school. And at one point, I had a, an aquarium where I had a pet sponge. For some of you who know my personality, that probably doesn't surprise you a whole lot, but I had a pet sponge and for those of you who are interested in rushing out and, and following suit and getting a pet sponge, they, they are not very affectionate creatures. God has made them very uniquely. They are a part of the animal kingdom, but they have no brains whatsoever. No brains, no emotions. In fact, when they're born, they float to a rock. Usually they like finding a dark, shaded place. They will attach to that rock and they will grow into their shape full of pores and then whatever floats by in the ocean and goes through their pores, that's what they eat. That is their form of nutrition. This is what we call a sessile invertebrate. A sessile invertebrate is not a conscious being. A sessile invertebrate is a living creature but he simply sits there and absorbs what the culture around him gives him. Sometimes we need to compare the different kinds of creatures of God. These are two other creatures of God, both of which have brains and emotions. The first one, the dog, is one that functions off of instinct. He has to do what God made him to do. There is no choice. He's not made in the image of God. I know this may be a shock to some of you dog lovers, 
He's not made in the image of God. The one on the right, however, is destined to become a free moral agent at the age of accountability. The human child, the human being, is unique in all of God's creation because made in the image of God, we have permission from God and the responsibility from God to make moral choices ourselves. And to do that, we must be alert. We must be conscious. <laughs> My father, who was an elder in the church and, and headed up the Christian school in Chattanooga for 45 years, he would often adopt this pose on Sunday morning. Now, being children that like to check on his spirituality, we'd ask him, Daddy, why are you, why are you sitting like that on Sunday morning? To which he would say, this is my deep biblical meditation pose. <laughs> but the truth is, we are challenged as Christians to slip into sessile invertebrate modes from time to time where we cease to function as Christians on a conscious, alert, and intentional basis. Our passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 this morning. We're going to read this together. The context of this passage is the Apostle Paul actually affirming and applauding, if you will, the congregation of the Lord's church at Thessalonica saying, well done, you are doing this very well. And what the Apostle Paul is affirming is that they are being very conscious, intentional, and awake in what they're doing as Christians. Let's read this together. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, and in this case, that's talking about physically alive, or physically dead, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. This morning, we're going to look at this passage through the, the lens of chapter 5 and verse 6. Every passage can be studied from multiple facets. That's the, the beautiful nature and the uh, incredibly deep nature of the Word of God. This particular time, we're going to look at this idea of being a conscious Christian. In verse 6, it says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, being awake and sober are being used metaphorically here, talking about a spiritual wakefulness 
and a spiritual sobriety. However, it is no mistake that the Apostle Paul chose these two physical things, being asleep and being drunk, as the metaphor that he wanted to illustrate this spiritual principle. In fact, it grieves the elders of this congregation if members of the congregation choose to sleep in on Sunday morning and choose not to prioritize meeting together with the saints. If that is your habit, then being a conscious Christian will be forever a huge challenge for you, if not impossible. It also grieves the elders of this church that if inadvertently on, on social media we see members of the church playing with alcohol, playing with alcohol for entertainment purposes, it is no mistake that the Apostle Paul says these things that dull your senses, that dull your brain, these things that make you unalert and unaware, you should not play with these things. But moving on to our spiritual wakefulness and our spiritual sobriety this morning, let's take a closer look at our passages. Before we look closer at a particular verse, let me define what conscious Christianity is not. Conscious Christianity is not simply doing my family tradition. A family tradition is not necessarily bad, but a family tradition cannot be what I base my faith on. It is also not being a consumer Christian where I'm just shopping through the religious shopping mart looking for goods and services that I want. Being a conscious Christian is not simply doing Christianity out of convenience. And being a conscious Christian is never putting my preferences above the preferences and clear teachings of God as he reveals them in his word. So how does Paul affirm the church in Thessalonica being conscious Christians? And thus, how do we live as conscious, alert, and intentional Christians? Well, let's look at verse 1 and 2 more closely. This is kind of a bizarre couple of verses, especially to base a sermon on. It says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why would Paul say that? Well, we have to go deeper into the context to understand what he's saying here. It's actually quite a powerful message. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians. And he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Is that not extraordinary? But this is the foundation on which we function as conscious Christians, and that is grappling with seriously, productively, studiously the Word of God. To the point it can be said of the West Side congregation that the Word has gone out from us so that everybody in our region knows we are serious about the study of the Word of God. We know full well what we believe and why. 
Knowing what we believe and why is more than just knowing facts and figures about the Bible. It actually includes something that the elders include in our adult Bible study curriculum regularly in every class, and that is how do we study the Bible to know what we believe and why. It took us two quarters the last time we did that in the auditorium class. Uh, we've done that also with the, uh, the 40s, 50s, and 60s groups. The last group to do this, I believe, was the uh, young adult class upstairs in the EOC. And so this is a very important part of knowing what we believe and why we have to know how to study the Bible as adult Christians. We don't have time to do two quarters in one sermon this morning. I know you're relieved about that. But we will go through a quick review of those principles that are so vital. And if you're a new member here, this is important for you to know. If you're visiting for the first time, this is important for you to know. And so I hope this review will be helpful to you. The first principle, and I've listed verses here for you to study on your own uh, time and your devotional time through the week. But we're just going to hit these highlights of what the Bible says is important concerning biblical Bible study. The Bible will interpret itself if we'll pay attention to how the Bible says it should be studied. The first principle is one must study the Bible in order to meet God on His terms. You might think, well, that is so obvious. But the reason we have 13 major world religions on earth today, and the reason we have a couple of perhaps 4,000 or so denominations all saying that we're following Christ but all teaching different things is because of this one Bible principle. When we go to the Bible, we should go to the Bible expecting to repent. We should go to the Bible expecting to have to bow our knee. We should go to the Bible expecting, I'm going to have to change today. I'm talking about today. Why are you here today? Because you've already arrived or because you need Jesus this morning? I hope you're here because you need Jesus this morning. The reason our worship is so joyful is because we know Jesus is here and is ready to help us grow into His likeness. The second principle of Bible study that I would review with you this morning is that one should study the Scriptures within the context and perspective of its big picture, the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Matthew especially highlights this principle for us. I often use the example of a jigsaw puzzle. If you're trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together, which pieces do you start with usually? The ones with the little flat sides, don't you? Because if you build your framework, everything else fits into context, and it's easy to see. The same is true with the Bible. And whereas the first principle underscores the fact that no one from this pulpit, no one from any of our Bible class lecterns bring in their philosophies or bring in their preferences, this second principle guards us against anyone from this pulpit or anyone teaching in our classes promoting their politics or their preferred political party. Because in the churches of Christ, the only political party we give our ultimate allegiance to is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
That is how we make all decisions about how to vote responsibly as citizens of our country. It's how we make moral decisions. It's how we decide how we worship together, how we organize the church, what our purposes in life are. And the third principle of Bible study is extremely important. The Scripture can never mean what it never meant. That's extremely important. This is the great context question. Thus, what the Bible meant controls what the Bible means to us today. God decided to reveal His will through the written Word in space and time. And what He was communicating to people in space and time has to be studied in order to bring it forward to what it means to us today. Well, just how does that work? Well, it's not rocket science, so nobody get concerned this morning that this is rocket science and that you have to have a Ph.D. degree to figure this out. We approach this with the same common sense as you read a book at school or read the newspaper or read a letter from someone who sent you one through the mail or email, as the case may be. But let's review the work that is required of children of God who have been blessed with a library of 66 books and where he expects us to participate in his home school, the home of Christ school. The first thing we have to do is look at the context of historical questions. This is where we take the time to ask of each passage the who, what, when, where concerning a passage so that we can know what's being said to those to whom it was written. The next set of questions we have to tackle are the literary questions. Now, this sometimes is daunting, but it's not difficult. Literary questions can be boiled down to word definitions. That is important because the Bible was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But we have tools today that are so easy to use. If you get a, a, a basic computerized Bible study program, you can go to a group translation of the Bible, very trustworthy translation. You can click on a word, and all of the Greek, Hebrew definitions will just pop up for you. For those of you who like the more traditional approach, you can get a concordance, you can get a lexicon, and you can work through word studies. Vine's word studies is an excellent one to get started with. Before I move to genre, I do want to mention grammar. Words are put together in relationships, nouns and verbs, pronouns. This is important for us to recognize and deal with the word as it is written because we believe that God, who created us, is capable of communicating with His creation. If you don't believe God can communicate clearly with His creation through eons of history, then why are you worshiping Him as God? Do you ever think about that? God is totally capable of communicating His will across eons of time, across light years of space, accurately and concisely for our knowledge, for our understanding, and that's how He does. The genre of literature is so important because in the 66 books, there are different types of literature. You have narrative history, which is kind of an easy-to-read novel approach in Scripture, but then you have more challenging things, such as the prophetic books, very challenging things. You have the apocryphal books. 
You also have law books. You have poetry. You have something unique on earth, the four Gospels. No other book on earth is like them. You have uh, the letters that are written for the church in the New Testament. You also have the way that God chooses to communicate to his children, just like any parent would. He can give us a direct command or a direct teaching to tell us what to obey or what to believe. He can give us an approved example that we are to follow. In the New Testament, that often comes across as an apostolic approved example because in John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus Christ delegated the authority by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the apostles to set the doctrine of the New Testament church in place for all time, for all churches everywhere. And then you have the occasional necessary inference, and the, the key word there is necessary, where God says two different things, and he actually expects us consciously to put them together and understand him. That's a necessary inference, and it's something that adult Christians don't need to be afraid of, don't need to feel like there's ambiguity of. Those are clearly demonstrated in Scripture. But now we come to another part, and this is one that the elders have been working on for some time, believing that we need to augment our curriculum, and this is going to be my attempt at, at helping start that process as we talk about how we bring Scripture and the knowledge of the Word and what we believe and why, the first step of being a conscious Christian, in, from what it meant to today, what it means to me, and how it changes my life. That's what we call application of Scripture. Application of Scripture is where many people get off the religious boat because when you take the courageous step of applying Scripture, you have to change. Many people find that so disturbing that they like keeping their Christianity as just a historical interesting study. And application is often considered the opening of a can of worms. I didn't even know a can of worms was a thing until I did research for this sermon. Turns out you can buy a whole can of worms, soft and moist, farm-raised. Should we be afraid of opening up cans of worms in the light of the gospel? We do not flinch at opening up cans of worms in our society or our culture or our human minds. We are willing to open up the Word of God and let it shine its light on every corner of what we believe and what we do because we believe God will lead us to where we need to be if we will bow our knee to Him. And so in application, I give you this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 33. In your personal studies, you can read through that and you will see every one of these application principles being used by the Apostle Paul with the church at Corinth. But in review this morning for application, let me just run down through a list. The first is, we have to begin an application working from God to man. Many people approach religion by starting with where man is and what man wants and what man's condition currently is, and they start trying to back into learning about who God is. And when one approaches Christianity that way, you normally come up with a God with a lowercase g 
But if you start with who God is, which is what Eric has been doing the last two weeks, starting with the very nature of God, and you go from God to what I'm supposed to be, then you will meet a God with a capital G. When I returned from Africa as a missionary after 20 years on the field, I was somewhat shocked at the number of the churches of Christ who were playing around with fundamental Bible doctrines concerning the churches of Christ. Over the last 20 years, many have decided to pursue Christianity like denominations pursue Christianity, including mankind's preferences, including their, their things that, that tickle their ears or their fancy. As I was sitting with a friend at McDonald's, he was an older friend. He had uh, grown up in the church, and he, he had served nobly as a leader in the church, and I was asking him about these churches who were departing from the simple New Testament plan of the church. And he said something to me that was very tragic. He said, well, you know, Brian, I've decided if it, if it was good enough for King David, it's good enough for me. So if somebody wants to add instruments, that's good enough for me, because it was good enough for King David, adding instruments to our worship on Sunday. I was horrified that someone who had grown up in the church, had served as a leader in the church, had chosen to be compromised by culture rather than standing on what the New Testament says. To the degree he was literally confusing and convoluting the old covenant with the new covenant. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason thing... Uh, the first part of our Bible is called the Old Covenant or Old Covenants. They're old. They are for us to learn from, absolutely necessary to learn from, but those covenants are not in effect anymore. The covenant we live under and that is our rule of faith as the law of the Spirit of life dictates, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, is the New Testament and God never leaves His covenants ambiguous and unclear. He gives us instruction so that we can know and understand. There should be no confusion between the Old Testament and what it commanded for worship or for life or for organization and what the New Covenant asks for. If there is any confusion, on the tables in the back with the Lord's Supper and the uh, contribution tables, I've brought three booklets from World Bible School called the Covenant Series. And if you would like to study further for your own enrichment of understanding the difference between the covenants, and the third book is called The Mystery of Music and How Music is a Covenant Issue, then feel free to take those. They're free of charge. They're on the back tables. But this is so important because my friend, because of popularity, was abandoning what the New Testament said in order to simply go with the flow, in order to be a sessile invertebrate, to let the flow of whatever's current flow through your pores, and that's what you become. There is no hope and purpose in a Christianity 
that confuses the covenants. The law of the spirit of life is not burdensome. Eric brought that uh, out beautifully in, in one of his recent sermons. It is easy, but there is purpose to it. Why do you think God commanded instruments of worship in the old covenant and he doesn't today? It's because everything in Christian worship has a newfound spirituality that we haven't seen since the Garden of Eden. And going back to the old covenant, if you're going to go back to the, the timbrels and the, the trumpets and the lyre, you're going to have to go back to incense for your prayer. You're going to have to go back to sacrificing animals for your sacrifice. You're going to have to go back to traveling to Jerusalem once a year for your worship. A covenant stands or falls together. You don't pick and choose. The new covenant is given to us clearly. It is Christ-centered. We don't do what we do because it's a tr family tradition. We do what we do because of the roles of Jesus to his church. Jesus is our king, so he gets his way. Jesus is our Lord, so we organize our family life accordingly. Jesus is our high priest, so we worship according to what he says, not what he doesn't say. Jesus is our bishop, so we organize the church's leadership according to him being the bishop of our faith. And Jesus is our teacher, and so we live morally and ethically accordingly. It's because of Jesus that we do what we do. It is consistent with the nature of God, and I'm so thankful for Eric's lessons drawing us closer to the nature of God. The New Testament makes it clear for us what is incidental incidentally mentioned in Scripture and the role of silence in Scripture. Incidentals are things that are just mentioned, but they're not doctrines. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did so in an upper room. It's mentioned, but it is not taught anywhere in the New Testament to be a doctrine. So we do not dismiss in order to have the Lord's Supper in the upstairs youth room. Not necessary. It's an incidental Concerning silence, when the Lord is silent on a matter, we do not require Him to give us a fuller explanation. He does not answer to us. We are content with what He says, and we are content doing what He says and respecting the silence. We are not going to have chocolate cake for dessert with the Lord's Supper this morning. Jesus never said, I couldn't. But we're not going to do that because he told us exactly what he wanted. And this church will always stand on what he said he wanted. The elders use a, a process as we deal with spiritual questions that is a very wise approach to every scripture. We ask ourselves, what is the purpose of every scripture? What is the principle, the eternal principle inside that scripture? And then what is the precedent? What is the apostolic precedent where we can stand and know what we are to be and do as a church family today? We don't make it up. If the precedent, if, if the apostolic approved examples don't mean anything, we don't know what Christianity looks like today. And so you might as well just be throwing dice with your spiritual life if you're not going to pay attention to the precedents. 
No, the precedents are authoritative, and we stand on those because without the New Testament, we do not know the path. We do not have the wisdom. We do not have the understanding without the precedents of the New Testament. And oddly, the way the New Testament is written, it gives us everything we need to cope with culture. Culture is one of the most difficult things to grapple with as we know the Word of God in order to be conscious Christians. This is my friend Gianni on the left, Gianni Motombo. He's from Central African country of the Congo. He was one of my students in South Africa where he was a refugee. As a person from Congo, he had several neutral cultural characteristics, such as his dreadlocks. He met a girl that was the sister of the fellow beside him from Scotland, and they got married. And suddenly, he had to wear a kilt to all family events. Talk about somebody who was conflicted culturally as a young Christian. Bless his heart. But the Bible gives him everything he needs to know how to navigate those cultural waters. Because you put God's will first. If a, if a characteristic of culture is neutral, it is welcome in the kingdom of Christ because our great commission goes to all nations. And so let's start with his haircut. Dreadlocks, welcome in the kingdom of Christ? Absolutely. But if his dreadlocks mean that he's imitating the Lion of Judah and giving his allegiance to Haile Selassie in the religion of Rastafarianism and worshiping the last Ethiopian emperor, then suddenly we have a problem. And that's a totally different matter to deal with. Let's take his dress. Let's take his kilt. His kilt, can he wear that to worship? Congolese believe that if you wear short pants, you can't, the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in you. That's just one of their cultural oddities. And so this was a huge challenge for Gianni. Could he wear a kilt? To worship? Absolutely. Kilts are welcome. Scotsmen are welcome in the kingdom of Christ. However, if after the first song we start to sit down, his kilt is so short that he has to scrunch to keep his underwear from showing, then suddenly we have a new problem. We have a problem of Christian modesty that has to be addressed. But the New Testament gives us everything we need to know how, to know what we believe and why, and stand on the teachings of the New Testament. If in your personal studies you would like help practicing these skills, here's a great resource from resourcepublications.net. It's a commentary set called Truth for Today from Eddie Kluwer in Searcy, Arkansas, where the scholars, this one Earl Edwards on 1 Thessalonians, scholars will do the questions of the who, what, when, where first, and then they'll have a section on application. And before long, practicing these skills, you'll be doing this naturally on your own as a Christian. Let's look at the next item the Apostle Paul gives us to be conscious Christians and living consciously. In chapter 5 and verse 5, he says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Brothers and sisters, the next 
affirmation that Paul gives for being a conscious Christian is know who you are. Know your identity. And your identity is so precious and so important to being a conscious Christian, I can't underscore it enough. Base your identity on what the Lord says. That's why in our adult education, we've been studying 1 Peter in every adult class because 1 Peter challenges us with our identity in Christ. Is it any surprise to you that as children of light, that we have turned on the lights of the New Testament in this congregation? Is it any surprise to you that this congregation is becoming a beacon of ethnic harmony? in our brotherhood and in our nation where it is difficult to find ethnic harmony? It's because we've been studying 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and 1 Peter. The lights are on. The cans of worms are open. But we let every can of worm that stands as an idol in our hearts and in our lives be subject to the light of the gospel so that those idols can fall to dust before the sovereignty of Christ. Amen? Nothing must stand in our way of becoming transformed into the likeness of Christ, and it gets personal. It gets all up in our business in application. We are children of light. As important as my skin color is, it is not the basis of my identity in Christ. As important as my politics are, it is not the basis of my identity in Christ. As important as, as my different preferences are to my personal life, that is not my identity in Christ. And we will subject our hearts and minds to the light of the gospel. We've done so recently with the bitter root that we've had a couple of uh, lessons on and how a bitter root destroys us as Christians. Your response to those lessons has been overwhelming as it has been transformative to many of you, and we thank God for that. That's what we do here at Westside Church of Christ. We subject our lives and our hearts and our minds to the will of Christ, and we let Him change us from inside out. We're not going to give you judgment here. We're going to give you truth urgently and with clarity because we want that same light transforming you into the likeness that you're created to be. There are a lot of things that are thrown at us in our society Verse 8 of chapter 5 says that we put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. You see, to be a conscious Christian, we have to march with courage knowing that we are safe. We do not do what we do out of fear of the public opinion or of anybody's censure. Someone wants to cancel the culture of Christ? Come on, Christ is big enough to take it on. We know well our destiny as the church of Christ in verse 10 or verse 9 and 10 as he says, we are destined not for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we might live with him. Why? Because we are the family of God that is who we are and we lift up each other's hands. When one of us gets sleepy, or one of us loses our sobriety, our brothers and sisters are there for us, not to judge us, but to help us, and to help us grow, to hold us accountable to the wonderful truths 
and the blessed hope of Jesus Christ. It takes courage to be conscious. This is how we'll end this morning. This is a campaign that took place just about three weeks ago in the country of Malawi. A World Bible School teacher, many of you are World Bible School teachers and we thank you for it, was sharing his faith with one of his students in Malawi. And he went there for a campaign and one of his students came. Turned out he was a bishop of the Pentecostal church. And Steve Gober shared his faith and he shared what was in the New Testament. And by the end of his stay there, he baptized that bishop into the Lord Jesus Christ. I have in my notes here an email that that gentleman, his name is Joap William, wrote to Steve. And he says in his last email, To God be the glory for our meeting. Our meeting was fruitful to follow the whole counsel of the truth from the Word of God. We thank God for your prayers. Our congregations have agreed to be and bear the name of Jesus Christ and become the churches of Christ in our area. No question now, you have brought a great enlightenment to us to see clear in the Word of God. The documents you sent is more essential for us to grow in how we worship and how we live, how we organize the church. To demonstrate that we are committed, we have bought big cups for Holy Communion, coffee cups. And today my wife is baking bread without yeast, as Brother Alex taught us. Only pray for us because we will need materials to use in all of the 16 churches that have decided to follow the New Testament. We agreed to follow the truth not because we want to please you, but God who sent you to us. God bless you and the entire church and family. Please, please help us in prayers to be established. The prayer of our eldership is that you be established as a conscious Christian. That you walk the road of courageousness no matter what culture, no matter what the world is saying, no matter what the compromises that are shoved down our throats every day in media. If this morning you have been walking as an unconscious Christian and you need to repent and come home, we would like nothing better than to pray for you. If this morning you are not yet a Christian and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are willing to say His name as your Lord, repenting of your sins, we are ready to baptize you in water, immerse you beneath the waters of baptism so that through the death of your old person and His burial, you can be raised to a newness of life in Jesus Christ. Let the light of Christ shine on your heart and become a child of light this morning. If we can help you in any way, won't you come while together we stand and sing?